Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Still Watching is brought to you by The Sinner. From executive producer Jessica Biel, The Sinner is a limited series event that begins with an unsettling and heart-wrenching crime, parents murdered by their young son. But the sins of a child are never his alone, and beneath the surface of a seemingly normal small town lie very dark secrets. You will know who, you will know how, you won't believe why. Bill Pullman, Carrie Coon, and Tracy Let's Star. The Sinner airs Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on USA Network. missing now. Get me a story. That moment, goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we break down the latest episode and occasionally feature interviews with people who worked on the show itself. This week Richard spoke with the amazingly talented Patricia Clarkson, who plays the uh, increasingly creepy Adora Krellin. And then after the interview, we will have our usual book spoiler section in which we spoil what, Richard? Everything. The whole damn thing. Everything. But you will hear a little a little music, a little hog noise, and Tupac will let you know that that is coming. Uh, but 
But before we get to any of that, we're going to dive into episode seven titled Falling, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée and written by Scott Brown. We want to kick off. We got a lot of emails from you guys. Thank you guys so much for all your nice emails about what Alan was reading at the end of last week's episode. Uh, it turns out it was the Bible. And um, a lot of people had a lot of different uh, interpretations of the specific chapter and verse that Alan was reading. Um the main interpretation seems to sort of be, let me, let me paraphrase the Bible if I may, like, are you a bad dude if you sit by and do nothing while other people do bad things? Mm. Um, and I wonder why that would be on Alan's yeah. mind. Um, all right. So, and then we've got, we got a couple other great, um, emails. This one comes, uh, from another listener who wishes to remain anonymous. And this listener wrote in and said, um, like basically when you and I, Richard, were first discussing the idea of someone cutting with words, um, you and I both were like, we're not sure if people actually do that or if that's just sort of like a gimmick of the novel. Uh, we already got, I think, a little feedback that we were maybe less respectful than we might have uh, been about that. But this this person who is a psychologist wrote, wrote it and just said, I uh, just wanted to say that I'm a psychologist. I'm very early in my career, uh, but I've, I'm literally only two months in or a few months in. But I've already encountered two individuals who not only cut – but cut words into their flesh. Uh, it's definitely not a gimmick. So, uh, I learned something from sharp objects other than how to poison your children. So there you go. Um, Thank you for that email. And then this email comes in from uh, Reagan or Regan. I'm not sure how to pronounce the, the email goes, I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast, especially the Tupac Hog Heat mashup I've been waiting my whole life for. Just a couple things I noticed from the episode Cherry, last week's episode. Ellen might be in the office on a fold-out couch because Camille is in what is usually the guest room. When she first comes home, Adora says she can have the guest room, her old room, because it has a nice soaking tub. Alan being downgraded to a pull-out couch would be another reason he wants Camille out of the house and their lives as soon as possible. Um, so I'm not sure if that's uh, – like, I kind of like the idea of, of Alan not having, like, a permanent other room that he's in. Yeah. But, uh, but it's also – I hadn't even – thought about that. So that's, that's a good point that this email makes. And then the second one is when Camille has the cherry flashback with Marion and Adora in the kitchen and Marion says, couldn't you just take a bite out of her? I think it's less about fat shaming young Camille and more of a setup for the memory of Camille seeing her, seeing her mother bite the baby. The offhand comment from Marion paired with what Camille witnessed might prompt her to carve cherry into her leg. The scene is, um, the scene in the book is a prelude to the Munchausen by proxy reveal and would tie in nicely with the bite in Ashley's ear. So, uh, we got that scene in this episode of, of Adora snacking on a baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, we will talk a little bit more about that when we get to that, but is there anything, uh, you want to say about those emails, Richard? Um, no, I mean, I appreciate them as ever. Um, I think that Adora's hospitality or, or not hospitality, but her, her sort of sense of, of, of keeping house, um, would demand that she always have an available guest bedroom. So I don't, yeah. I don't think that she'd be putting Alan up permanently anywhere if that meant not having anywhere for potential guests to stay. Um, That's a great point. that is my big takeaway from that. And, uh, and again, I apologize. We, we both apologize if we were flippant about, um, the, the particular you know, word, cu- word cutting thing. Um, I had never heard of it. Uh, I sh- certainly could have done my due diligence and done some research. So apologies if anyone was offended by that. We did not mean to be jerks about it. 
Um, absolutely. And the, the last thing I want to say is, you know, the, the email, if you want to write into us, uh, we love your emails, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Last week, Richard joked that, uh, that was an email that I had because of my fascination with Podrick Payne fan fiction. Uh, this week, we did have someone send us a little snippet of Podrick Payne mm. fan fiction. So, bless you for that email. <laughs> it made me laugh so hard. So, thank you guys for all of your emails, uh, with or without Podrick Payne from Game of Thrones fan fiction. Um, let us talk about this episode, Falling. Um, so the title this week does not come from a word. I believe it comes from the fact that Camille and, uh, you know, well, it has a bunch of different meanings, but specifically the fall that she and her sister took at the end of last week's episode put them in a slightly vulnerable position with their mom. The fall in the book is much worse. And like when it's described in the book, they fall on concrete, not grass. And you hear, you like hear popping and blood spurting. Yeah. And so like, I thought something really crazy had happened when they fall in the book. Um, and then they're like sort of okay after that. And so I, I kind of like how this is handled a little bit better that the fall, the tumble onto the grass, which has still left Camille a little bruised, but very specifically it puts her in a position where Adora feels like she can tend to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wakes up in one of those nightgowns. You know, she's seen girls all all season wearing nightgowns. She wakes up in one of those nightgowns, and um, that Adora has put on her, and Adora wants to tend to her. What did you think of this of this opening? Yeah, the opening's uh, great. I mean, you know, he. I feel like valet as the season wears on is getting a little bit more, you know, sort of a- abstract with his openings, and this one with. Camille dreaming of the dollhouse and she's looking in it and then all of a sudden something is moving inside it, um, which is mirrored by the last shot of the, in the episode. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, you know, once again, effective and, and this episode, you know, in general, I do feel like there's a rather sudden leap into information, you know, like all of a sudden it's like, okay, we got to wrap up and here. So here's what's been happening uh, with Adora, you know, this whole time. And I, I, I guess I maybe wanted a little bit more of a build to it, though. I don't know how, what that would have looked like. I, I wonder, I was talking to someone else about this and they were like, why haven't we seen Emma more sick? Mm-hmm. Like throughout the, throughout the season, maybe that would have like helped us lead up to it. Like, cause in the book, they talk about how the Krellen women are like sickly yeah. generally. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, this idea that it's not just Marion who is sick, but also Emma, um, would help us. There were like little tiny hints. Like if you know what to look for early in the season, there are little tiny moments, uh, with Emma being like sort of sickly, but they're very subtle. And yeah, it does, it does sort of come up all at once. There's also, I mean, we'll talk about it much more when we get to it, but there's also like the John Keane stuff. I also feel like comes a little suddenly in this episode. So maybe it's just that this episode had to like heavy lift on two things. Um, and like from my view, like almost entirely successfully lands it, but would have been helped with a little bit more bleed through or in earlier episodes If that. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, this, the part where, uh, Adora grabs Camille's ankle, uh, was so upsetting to me because mm-hmm. like it could look like an accident, but it doesn't seem like an accident. It just seems like she intentionally like wrenched that ankle and, and the way in which like Amy, Amy Adams played the pain was just like, it was, it was really good. And the flashback, like, I don't know. I'm really curious for people who don't know this reveal is coming. Um, I'm curious, you know, how much dread that flashback shot of Adora holding down, holding down a young Camille, like, would, would bring up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
Um, unfortunately though, Richard and I news is coming. So we get, uh, the whole episode to watch Adora, I don't know, mix her potions, but, um, <laughs> we get it. We get another classic Jackie Caftan moment, a uh, beautiful pink number as she sort of, uh, you know, puts the screws to Vickery outside of a drugstore. I loved this exchange as I love every single Jackie exchange. Uh, yeah, it's funny. There's some, there's some just clever writing there where, you know, he's going to buy cigarettes and she's like, and he's, she says to him, are you, re- you refueling for the day? Um, and he sees her buying basically Bloody Mary mix or whatever. And he's like, I, I see you're doing the same. And she says, no, it just helps get the fuel down easier. You know, just this kind of funny banter that is not like, I don't think necessary for understanding the world of the show, but just kind of adds more color to it. And, and both uh, Matt Craven and Elizabeth Perkins are great at it. So why not have it? Right. He says something like, I'm off to protect and serve. And she's like, I'm off to mix and serve. And then she laughs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cackle. Oh, yeah. That laugh. That's, um, it sort of made me sit up upright every single time it happened because, uh, valet cuts it off like mid cackle. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really like, it's disturbing. It's really good. Um, and then we, we have, Camille looking in on Emma and Emma says she gave you the blue, which should be like another hint that like, you know, uh, they're so well versed in Adora's uh, medicine that they can just call it the, the blue. Um, Camille urges her like not to take the medicine. And then, uh, you know, Camille tries to like fuss with the dollhouse and Emma's like, no, you can't, don't do that. And then, uh, Emma lets Camille know that John Keen is, is getting arrested. Um, yeah. And like, and, and Emma here has retreated back into like baby mode and sort of, yeah. you know, this sort of sing song speak, you know, why I like getting wasted because afterward mama takes care of, you know, um, she's definitely got a very fraught relationship with, what her mother has been doing to her and the family, um, where it's become an absolute function of their, of the, of their, of their relationship in, in, in that, in that it steadies it and it makes it, you know, um, it makes it work. I mean, in a very perverse way, um, which is interesting. And, and it, and it further kind of distances Camille from the family because she clearly, as we learned later in this episode, just like wasn't, wasn't having it ever. Um, so yeah, I just think, I think it's interesting watching kind of Emma vacillate between her two halves. Right. She says she's the doll in this mm-hmm. scene, right? And she goes, she goes, um, you know, mama wants, I want mama and mama wants me like this, which, it, which reveals an awareness of like what's being done to her. Yeah. Right. Uh, unlike Marion, I would suspect Marion had no idea, you know, cause she was much younger, but Emma as an older, uh, smart, canny young woman knows what she's doing and she's willingly participating in it or, you know, has been sort of brainwashed into doing it. And so, um, and, and Camille telling her to stand up for herself. So that happens. And then, uh, Dick is, is investigating further, uh, in a like slightly less creepy way because he is on, like, seems like Jackie gave him enough information in that bar scene that we didn't quite see, but Jackie sort of pointed him in the right direction. And he went to this methadone clinic to find this nurse who would have some information about, uh, what happened. And I'm just going to jump forward a little bit and, and finish that section out. And he like, he talks to this, uh, to this nurse and, uh, she has this chart on Marion that she, 
she like sort of was holding on to that she got him fired for interrogating. And then he finds out from those records that it was Jackie who was continually requesting information on Marion. Um, she has this great line where she says the nurses, we were the record. And it seems like, I mean, I, I know of course that there are like women doctors and stuff like that, but it seemed like slightly gendered to me where it's just sort of like, um, you know, the, the, the men, the people in power, like they are corrupt and stuff like that. And the, and the women, the nurses, that's obviously gendering to professions, which are definitely mixed, but like, uh, yeah. we were the watchers. We are the record keepers. I just, I really, I really like that. Yeah. And, um, and the nurse, yeah. nurse Beverly is played by Christine Rose, who people will know from heroes, um, and various other things. And she's great in, in, in these scenes. Um, yeah, I think that there's, and, and just this kind of idea of, a network of people who sort of tacitly knew something was happening um, and sort of kept an eye on it, but felt sort of powerless to actually intervene. Um, I feel like there's a lot of this, not only just on the show in general, but on, in this episode between Alan and Jackie, um, each kind of in a way getting their sort of reckoning of a sort, you know, or being at least confronted by their, um, you know, sort of, enabling in a way. Um, so it's just interesting to see that, that kind of mirrored with, with this nurse character and, and just kind of hinting at a deeper, older story that, you know, we may never, we may never get the fullness of it, but like, it's just, it's interesting to have it implied. It's funny. Cause Christine Rose is an actress that I'm usually used to seeing play. Like, um, I don't know, like stately, powerful women, like rich, mm-hmm. influential women. And so to see her in this role, she's so good in this, like, it's a small part, but she's so good in it. And like, uh, the way that they've given her, like, you know, in, in the, in the waiting room of the methadone clinic, you see these people who are just like terribly worse for wear. And with nurse Beverly, like she, if you know what Christine Rose looks like in other roles, you're just like, she's slightly sunken. She's slightly like, you could see maybe she has, maybe she is, uh, partaking of the methadone, like Vickery says, or not, who knows, but like, that, you know, just, she's, how low she's been brought by even trying to cross Adora in any way, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a great scene. Uh, so then let's like, let's hop back a little to, um, an, another favorite of the still watching crew, which is Ashley Wheeler. Um, Ashley comes to the carriage house, the Wheeler carriage house to find like Vickery, uh, is there with a search warrant going through and, um, he, he, like, I love the scene where he just, like, silently waves Camille on. Like, he sees Camille out on the street. He's like, move along. Yeah. You don't get to stop here. Uh, and then Vickery, like, you know, Vickery's not terrible at his job. And here he is, like, perfect at his job because he knows exactly what to say to Ashley, uh, to get her to talk to him. And I just, I love this girl. What did you think of y- Ashley? Yeah. Here? I mean, you know, I, I think that, I think it was a little, um, on the nose, maybe. For her to be like, wait, gee, would my name be in the paper? And he's like, face on the TV. And it's like, I feel like they could have shaded that a little bit better. I feel like they could have shaded that a little bit more. Um, but, uh, you know, we love, we love Ashley. And I think it's interesting watching this episode. And Vickery, I feel like we see him be decent a few times in the episode. Or at least, like you said, good at his job, you know, in terms of this scene. And then later on, uh, at the motel where he's actually he sort of respects Camille's privacy in a way um, that, so yeah, I think he, I feel like he's get, getting, if not redemption because he's, you know, um, he's not perfect, but like, I just, I don't know. I feel like we're seeing a little more humanity from him. Well, yeah. And I think, I think it would be easy to make Vickery, uh, Vickery who's like 
kind of barely a character in the book, and so they've expanded him for the show. So everything that they've done for the show uh, is just to add, like, depth and nuance. And you could have easily made Vickery, like, a mustache-twirling villain of some kind. Um, and instead, he's, like, a somewhat decent man who I think has been, like, poisoned in his own right by Adora, compromised uh, in certain ways. And, you know, it's clear by the end of this episode, I think that, like, he doesn't, know exactly what Adora's been doing, but maybe he's been willfully blind about what Adora's been doing. Yeah. And, uh... I mean, Jackie and, says, how's our girl? To Vickery. Oh, well, that... Yeah. You know, implying Adora. Absolutely. Like, the the implication of the affair, uh, you know, which is... Which has, I think, been seeded throughout the season, like, feels more confirmed in this episode. But I'm thinking more like, the episode ends, basically, with Vickery saying, like, sick... You know, yeah, like, yeah. huh, I, I, maybe <laughs> I, mean, I haven't kind of, been. <laughs> that's kind of what I mean about this. Like, it's like all of a sudden everyone's like putting the pieces together. It's, you know what I mean? It yeah. just feels a little, yeah, yeah. a little quick I in a way, you. but. I hear you. But yeah, like Vickery, he's not like, he's not evil, but, but he's like, but like Alan sort of passively evil, you know, and it's yeah. right. So, um, and then I should say really quickly before we roll on, of course, that, uh, I forgot to mention that, of course, Nurse Beverly brings up Munchausen by proxy, uh, which is something that you and I have talked about a little bit in the, in the book spoiler sections, uh, but this is like the big Adora reveal, uh, is this syndrome, uh, just for those of you who have been looking, listening to the spoiler sections, uh, you know, Richard and I did have a previous discussion about the film The Sixth Sense. Yeah, Misha Barton, how- <laughs> no, poor, poor puke and Misha. <laughs> Pukin, good old Pukin Misha is how I learned about Munchausen by Barf proxy. Barton, I guess. <laughs> Misha Barton, I think, <laughs> is something. <Yeah. laughs> um, but yeah, little Misha Barton, uh, playing this like puking ghost who reveals that she's poisoned. Um, and, um, like, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a very interesting, uh, syndrome to include in this story that is so much about like women because I, I could be wrong, but I think that Munchausen by proxy is usually like enacted by mothers or stepmothers or caretakers. Female women yeah. are usually doing this. And so it is like a specifically female, uh, perversion on this idea of nurturing and, yeah. and mothering and stuff like that. And, so, and Gillian yeah. Flynn gets some criticism for, uh, the women in her books, you know, for, I mean, people call her sort of anti-feminist and various, because she writes these things that do sort of pervert, um, you know, an idea, I guess, of, of women and women's roles in the world and in community. And, uh, you know, I, I it's probably not for me to say either way, but I, I, I think that it's interesting watching her expl- either reading a book or seeing an adaptation of one of her books, like, the, exploring the dynamics, you know, sort of intra, intra, I guess what gender or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, whether those things are imposed by, you know, from without or within, um, you know, so I think that introducing this thing, which is real, you know, I mean, it's probably rare or rarer than some other crimes, but like just recently, a couple of years ago, there was one of these YouTube or at least Instagram mommy blog women who was poisoning her child and killed them. Um, and you know, was doing it for a sense of attention and various other things. And, um, anyway, so I think it's a fascinating, uh, thing to introduce, uh, e- even if it's been done a little hastily. Yeah, Isu did a documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest or something like that. Mommy Dearest and Dead, something like that. Uh, cause it's a, it's a, it's a, 
it's a very strange story, the whole thing. Um, I hadn't heard of it, but someone mentioned it to me, uh, when we were talking about Munchausen by proxy and apparently, yeah, it was, it was this big thing and it, it like, it sounds like an unbelievable syndrome, but you know, like, like the, you know, cutting of words into skin, like it is a thing that exists. And, uh, you can watch this documentary if you want to watch it and learn more about the, about the syndrome generally. Um, and so be, when we get this reveal from nurse Beverly, um, sorry, they don't give her last name. So I'm just calling her nurse Beverly. Um, then we cut to seeing, um, Adora and Emma play this scenario out where Emma tries to follow Camille's advice and refuse the medicine. And Adora is just like, Oh, you don't, you know, like, and she's like, maybe I just need a grilled cheese. And Adora's like, Oh no, you don't need me. You don't need anything. Like you don't need this dollhouse. You're a grown up now. She tries to take the dollhouse and she's like, and, uh, pay for your own way and do, do all of this. You don't need me at all. And then Emma relents and, and gets in bed and takes the medicine. Um, is this when she's talking about like, when am I going to have kids or something like that? And Adora keeps saying like, that's years from now, years from now. Is that, that's that same scene, right? No, that's a little later. Oh, that's is that later? Adora, Adora takes her cell phone and stuff. Like oh, that. right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. But we'll get to that. We'll get there. This episode of Still Watching is brought to you by USA Network's limited series, The Center. Listen to the end of this episode for the second installment of Still Watching The Center, in which Emma Stefanski and Matt Singer discuss the second and third episodes of the new season. New episodes of Still Watching The Center can be found as bonus content at the end of Still Watching Chopped Objects, as well as the next season of Still Watching. Then we get Camille, uh, like, going into her bar looking for John. Um, I miss this the first time um, that the the bartender, her old classmate or whatever, uh, calls it a Beantown bar. And I didn't realize the first time what that meant. Mm-hmm. But we are finally getting... Not actual characters, but more glimpses of the of the Mexicans they keep talking about uh, in the show. They all drink at a different bar, uh, twenty clicks away. Um, it's a nicer bar, I think. I, li- I like it it's so much more. It's like and, yeah. it's it's like in a little house. Yeah, um, yeah I really like it. Um, the before we get there, there's one quick diner scene with Dick and Vickery where Dick is basically trying to like get Vickery to acknowledge what's going on with Adora or, or, you know, that, that these medical files are worth looking at. And Vickery's like, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're here to investigate this. We got Ashley to turn on John Keene. We found out about the blood stain, uh, under the bed or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get him basically. And we're looking for him. Do you want to come help us arrest him? Uh, you know, and Dick is justifiably frustrated that Vickery won't listen to him about this other thing. So, um, with Vickery, like just smearing Beverly, I just like, I love this. Like just how casually he's just sort of like, Oh, the woman who got fired and now is addicted to methadone, that woman who's just completely not credible. And I'm like, that's what they want you to think. And he really likes doing that, you know, Yes. Like he's, 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 he undermines women a lot by sort of, yeah, um, making them seem crazy or, you know, messed up in some way. Yeah. Oh yeah. He says this thing. He's like something about the women here. Climb over anyone to get their name in print. God forbid you be ordinary. It was just like poor Jocelyn. Yeah. Was that that his wife's name? Yeah. Yeah, Jocelyn. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, Vickery. Um, so then, yeah, so then we have this, like, montage of Camille driving around town looking for John. She gets to this, uh, much cuter bar in a house, uh, flexes her minimal Spanish by ordering dos bourbons, por favor, um, and sitting down with him. This is a really, it's a long scene. It's an incredible scene, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you had mentioned before, um, that you really liked this actor who 
Taylor John Smith as John Keen. I gotta say, I wasn't like fully feeling it until this episode. And then I was like, oh, there it is. Oh, he's really he has, good. He's so good in this. He reminded me of Patrick Wilson in this scene, mm-hmm. uh, who is someone in this house. We respect Patrick Wilson. Like I love Patrick Wilson. Absolutely. So that like, That's a high compliment. Baby Patrick Wilson. So good. Cause he's like drunk. But he's smiling and the smile is so unsettling and uh, and crying sort of at the same time. And this just pa- back and forth, their connection is something that I buy. But it is, once again, something I wish I had seen a little bit more of in earlier episodes. Yeah, like I feel like a lot of the stuff in this episode would feel a little more earned if there had just been like literally one beat before in a previous episode, like one scene. If we'd had one more scene of, of John sort of and Camille, you know, forming some kind of bond. If we'd had one more scene implying something Adora was up to, you know? Um, yeah. That said, um, you know, this interesting sort of fatalism that John um, has kind of embraced because he figures, what the hell, like, they think I did it, uh, my sister's dead anyway, like, what does, it, what does anything matter? Like, uh, it's very well articulated by... Um, Taylor John Smith and, and Amy Adams is such a good scene partner, you know, when, when he finally does say, like, I didn't kill my sister, and she just says this kind of, like, sad, I know, um, is, I just think it was a really, it's a really well done scene, and, 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 and a, and a scene where, you know, this show is a lot of swirling and, you know, looping and jumping in and out of things, and this is just, there are two people sitting and talking for a while, it's, it's, it's a kind of a nice change of pace. There's little notes of humor, like he's like, what are, what are our sisters have been friends? And she's like, hell no, you know, and stuff like that. Like it's, it's yeah. really, it's really well balanced. You make a good point that there are no, there's no like trickery involved in this. It's just straight great acting. Um, I should note, like a lot of our listeners have emailed to point out that in the first scene where Camille is, uh, like, with Detective Dick, I thought we talked about this in the episode, but enough people have emailed us that maybe we forgot to. When she's like, when he's like jerking her off in the woods or whatever, uh, that she does have a flash of John Keane's face. Uh, so like, at least we have like that split second of a flash to know that she found him sexually attractive. Um, but still that like deeper connection, uh, this, this, um, personal connection, I feel like is something we could have seen in an Ashley scene. Like even if he said something that like went over Ashley's head, but Camille got or something like that, you know what I mean? Would have, would have been helpful. Um, and he says this thing to her where he's like, he says he's already dead and she's dead too. And then he says, prove you're not dead Camille. And what I'm, once again, I'm curious, we were talking last week during the party episode about this, like dread I had reading the book and even watching the episode of like, Oh God, what like terrible bad decision is Camille about to make? Like, is she gonna fuck her sister? What's right. happening? All this sort of stuff. And I'm curious if people not knowing that, you know, John John and Camille have sex in the book, like if they're like, I'm sorry, what are you doing with this teenager? Mm-hmm. Like, what's happening, Camille? What terrible bad decision are you about to make? Um, my memory of the book, and forgive me, I did not have a chance to reread this section, but my memory of the book is that Camille is a little drunker. When she does this in the book, uh, you know, we've seen Amy Adams as Camille play quite a bit drunker throughout the season. She doesn't seem that drunk no. in this scene. Um, I can't tell if that's better, that it might be better that she's soberer. Um, I can't, I think that, I think that, tell. you know, when we get to the sex scene, which is very, um, intimate in a way, like, I, I, I think that having her be a little more sober, it sort of clarifies why she does it, which is sort of that, like, here's this broken 
you know, beautiful, who she calls, calls beautiful young man who in his particular brokenness, like sees her more and she then lets him see everything, you know? Um, so I feel like having that be a more conscious, sober decision, uh, is a bit more interesting in terms of character study. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so let's hop through the things we have between, um, this and that sex scene, which is, uh, Dick going to the like main hospital to get a file on Emma, which is even thicker Mm -hmm. than Marion's file. Uh, Kelsey and Joe's sort of skating through the deserted town trying to go see Emma. This is great. I mean, Kel- just the sight of Kelsey and Joe's skating without Emma, the two skaters, it looks like the town is empty and then this, like, the trio is, is missing his third also. Yeah. It just looks wrong, you know? Uh, it's really good. Adora turns the girl away. Uh, one of them calls Adora a bitch and then we get Emma sort of on her secret phone, and this is the scene you were talking about where Adora comes in and, and Emma hops back in bed to play the invalid for her. Right, right. And, 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 uh, and Adora says this thing about, you know, where, where Emma's asking her about when she has her own kids and, and Adora's like, oh, that's years. It's so far away. And it's like, well, I mean, she's a teenager. You know, she's gonna presumably leave the house in just a few years. Like, you know, I think this kind of, wishful thinking that Adora has about like time and like the, the, the permanence of children. Um, I guess the only way to preserve a child forever is to kill them. <laughs> and so, right. so they never get older, um, which is, you know, maybe the intention or maybe just the byproduct of, or the sort of, of what happens from this. I don't know. But um, anyway, it's, I thought it was a really creepy scene. Yeah. Marion is forever the the vulnerable child that Adora wants um for all time. And yeah, this idea and then that's a danger for Emma. I think Emma knows that. Mm-hmm. Like it's dangerous for her to grow up. It's dangerous for her to think about having children because Adora needs her to be a, a, her little girl. So, um and Adora takes Emma's secret phone because Camille uh busted Emma on her secret phone. Mm-hmm. She needs it for when she's sick. Camille, come on. Man. Um, <laughs> all right. And then, so yeah, then we have the sex scene between Camille and John. And like, I think it's like perfect, except for this is my two on the nose, uh, criticism, which is like when she says, you're reading me. And it's like, it's good, but it just seems too much. Like, I feel like I got, she didn't have to say it. I got it. He was reading yes. it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love this. I, I think the consent here is very clear. Cause like while he's urging her and saying it'll be okay and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like it's clear that she's consenting. And then I, just this idea, something that, that I was thinking about is like, I'm not sure if we know if this version of Camille, I, I think there's some, uh, you know, information in the book, but if this show version of Camille has ever had loving consensual sex, if she started cutting like when she was a teen, sort of shortly around the time that she got sort of sexually assaulted by these foot players, like football players, has she ever had consensual loving sex that involves like, like skin to skin and like the possibilities that she hasn't. And so when, when like, uh, you know, forgive my sort of Patrick Payne fan fiction, uh, level of, of, um, vocabulary here, but like when he enters her, like it's almost like a loss of virginity moment is sort of like how it's played. You know what I mean? It's like a gasp of like pain, but also you mean when he sheaths his sword in her womanhood. 
<laughs> you nailed it, bud. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I would a thousand percent read some Richard Lawson fan fiction, by the way. But, um, yeah. So, uh, I, I really liked the scene. What did you think? Yeah. It's good. They're, again, they're both good in it. Um, it, I feel like sometimes in movies, TV, whatever, when like two characters have sex, like during a fraught moment, you're kind of like, is that really what they'd want to do right now? You know? Like, sometimes it just feels like they're just putting it in to have a sex scene. Uh, this, I totally got why they were doing it. Yeah. You know, because for him, it was maybe a last hurrah if he thought he was going to go kill himself or it was going to be, you know, hauled off to jail. Um, for her, you know, it, she's still kind of reeling from um, all the Adora stuff, just everything. You know, it just, it, it, it made sense that, like, sex would be something they both felt they needed at that exact moment. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting uh, watching Camille as performed by Amy Adams slide sort of willingly from, I'm going to get this kid. So maybe he could actually, you know, give me some quotes or whatever. Like, I feel like she's trying to do her job at first, but like pretty quickly just falls into the sort of moment of it. Um, And I think it's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And this, the, like, we had seen her body before in that dressing room scene, but, like, the, I want to say, like, the makeup effect on her is very impressive, and just the way it's all, it all plays out. We get more shots of that in, in this next scene, but really quickly, we see Emma sort of running, flitting around the house, sneaking around the house on the upper level, trying to find a way to communicate with the outside world. She finds, like, Camille's laptop, she finds the file with, like, the, the photos of the girls, um, and then she like hops back into bed, but I don't, you know, she's sort of ghosting about upstairs looking like, looking like some kind of Marion. Um, mm-hmm. and then we have this great juxtaposition of, uh, we have Adora sort of rubbing a sick young Camille's back that's smooth. And then we've got John doing a similar gesture and sort of kissing on, uh, Camille's scarred back. The first gesture is, a very toxic one, right? Because we know what Adora's nurturing gestures mean. And this one, even though like you don't want Camille to fuck an 18 year old, like there is something about this where you're just like so happy for Camille that she found someone that she felt like she could show herself to. It's the wrong person. It's the wrong time. Like that's classic Camille. Of course it's like, it's, there's so much wrong about it, but like, it feels like a healthy step in the right direction to be able to expose yourself at all to someone. So I don't yeah, know. and the kind of like release of that moment, I'm just like, okay, well here I am, like yeah. it's out here, like you know, m- might as well just kind of like be in it. Um, I know what you mean. Like obviously, this is a pretty fraught y- union, you know, a pretty fraught cr- coupling, but uh, for a lot of reasons. But yeah, there is there is a sweetness to it, and I think in a way, the fact that John is younger and maybe less attuned to how fraught the situation is, you know, like maybe more just sort of eager and, and still believes that like this physical connection can like solve everything, you know, um, maybe that's kind of like what she needed in a way, that kind of optimism. And we should say that, um, Ashley said earlier in the episode that John would never have sex with her. Mm -hmm. So like the fact that he feels comfortable to have sex with Camille is like his own, um, perhaps healing, gesture. Yeah. Uh, that's very fraught. They talk about dead girls. Cause what else do you talk about? Uh, pillow talk in, in wind gap, but dead girls. And, uh, you know, basically 
this is another, yeah, this is another, like, two on the nose line where John's like, it's like they took all the interesting girls in Wind Gap and they killed them. And I'm like, e- yeah, we got that. Yeah, it's sort of been the that. theme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then he mentions to uh, Camille that, like, her mom, Adora, was the only one who sort of paid any attention to Natalie and Anne. So. And then something Doug. really clicks in, in Camille's head. Yeah. Like, she, her, her, her whole expression changes, her eyes get wider, and she's like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, there it yeah. is. Sick. Um, but. Sick. Hmm. (laughs) Um, whatever revelation that she was about to pursue, uh, gets cut short, uh, because Vickery breaks in and Dick's right. You know, we, we, we had an earlier shot of Vickery being like, telling Dick, like, we have an APB on this, on this kid. Are you coming? And so, you know, if, if, if you're worried about whether or not Dick would be there to see Camille with a teenager, uh, yep. Dick's there, and it's I I like almost couldn't watch this the first oh, time. God, it's I, so like, oh, it's cringy. so it's so hard. Um, as far as I can tell, Camille as she like dashes under the covers and then hurriedly throws her jeans on, like he doesn't see her skin. So, um, you know, it's not that conversation yet. It's just, oh, you fucked a teenager and a murder suspect uh, conversation. Just that one, a little light chatter. Um. This is something that I've been curious about because this, this reaction from Dick, like, of course, you would expect him to be upset to say horrible things. In the book throughout, I don't like Dick very much. In the show, I did quite like him. I think Chris Messina played him very, um, like, charmingly. I think the increased screen time makes you sort of more interested in Dick. And so I was curious how they would handle this turn. Um, and I think some of the stuff last week with him investigating her, like, got me prepared. I'm yeah. like, I don't like you investigating her. Okay, you're the kind of guy who would call someone a slut uh, in, in in a moment of anger. Call, call a woman a slut. Um, it still feels like a little abrupt. I'm not sure if I like fully buy it, but it's so hard. Uh, her like trying to please him by like trying to like go down on it. It's just like, it's really, it's, it's rough to watch. Yeah. yeah. It's really rough to watch. Um, you know, and also because like, it's that kind of like, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed sort of thing. Like, because obviously he feels personally jilted by, by yeah. her sleeping with somebody else. But it's also like this kind of like, oh, come here, come on with him. He's 18 years old. He's grieving. He's a murder suspect. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You know? Right, and that right. sort of thing of just like, you know, if, if you're in a messy state in your life and someone just kind of like calls you out on it, you know, it, it just feels so bad. It's just an awful kind of confirmation of everything you already know about yourself, you know? Um, and just to be seen that way, it's just, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a really well acted scene. I, I, I agree that maybe the, the slut part is a little bit sudden in a way in terms of his character, but like, you know, he's lashing out. He's surprised. Um, not, not, not to excuse anyone for using that word, but like, I don't know. It, I think it works well enough in the scene. Yeah. So they all, they all leave. John's been arrested. He, he says he's 18, so Camille's not, like, yeah. in trouble for statutory rape. Um, he gets arrested. Vickery says to leave her, it's interesting, you say that as sort of, like, a compassion. I saw it as, like, deference to Adora. Like, Adora would not want oh, Camille yeah, caught mean, up in all of this. So. Could definitely be that, too. Maybe a little bit of both. And, um, and then we, we see like Dick watching Camille come out of the hotel and or motel and she gets in her car and he has, for all that he has called her a slut, 
uh, he left the file in her car and he, he, he did that after. So like he called her a slip, but then he walked out and he put the file in her car. Yeah. So there's still like something, you know, compassionate in him for that. So, um, cause that, it doesn't feel like an act of aggression. It feels like an act of like, you should know this. Oh yeah. He's like cluing her in, you know? Yeah. Because everyone so, had the same epiphany at once in the same episode about what's been going sick. on. Sick. Sick. Jackie? Uh, yeah, so Adora, Adora, uh, no, uh, Camille sees Jackie's name on all the, all the things. She has this great flashback, um, that I think Elizabeth Perkins talked to you about. I got, I've been like waiting for this. She's like, there's a great scene where Patty and I are dancing and I'm like, oh, I can't wait for the, for the Adora Jackie dance party. And it, it's brief, but it's everything I could have wanted. Oh my god, the high uh, kick killed yeah. me. I did yeah. like a little like circle back 10 seconds thing like four times. <laughs> Cause I was just like, what? It's so good. I want like an hour of that. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and so, you know, and we see like this, this affection, this touch from Jackie as she's like, you know, and, and maybe, maybe it is intentionally or not supposed to relate to like us seeing, um, Emma sort of dancing with Adora to Tupac and then Camille doing the same thing with Gala and here she's doing it with Jackie. Like she, you know, she's, she's had these few bits of affection and support in her life, but it's never been from yeah. her mother. Um, something um, I talked to Patricia Clarkson about Patty, um, uh, is, is the dancing. I didn't, I forgot to mention the high kick specifically, but she said that like she has a dancing past. I guess Jean-Marc Vallée has a dancing past. And so that was kind of a, a conversation about how much Adora would be seen dancing in the, in the show. Um, which so they were, it was definitely considered. It was like, it was a purposeful thing. Can I tell you my one Patricia Clarkson story? Patty, you mean? Um, Patty, your friend yeah. Patty. Mm-hmm. I I did an event like years and years and years ago. I used to work at uh, in San Francisco at this thing called City Arts and Lectures, where we would have like actors and authors come speak. And Patricia Clarkson, we did like a spotlight for her. And I was talking to her backstage, and you know, she was talking about like the pressure of the theater because it's like this beautiful old theater in San Francisco, and then it was just going to be like her out on the stage. She's like the pressure of just her out on the stage, and uh, she's like, I don't know what I should do. Should I do a little shuffle ball change? And then she like did a little like soft shoe for me, and I was like, oh. Patty Clarkson's Amazing. doing top dancing for just for me, but uh, yeah, she's she's incredible. I'm so glad you guys talked to her. I can't wait to listen to that. Um, but before we get to that, we should talk about the scene that I've been waiting for, which is this like this is Jackie's biggest scene in the book. We've talked before about how they expanded the Jackie role for the show, like they did a lot of other side characters. So we've had like these great bits from Elizabeth Perkins sort of throughout, but in the book, this is Jackie's big moment, and I think. Uh, Elizabeth Perkins does an amazing job as ever, really nailing what I consider to be like a grotesque scene in the book. Maybe it's not quite as like grotesque, but just like all the stuff with like her pills. She has a line and- where she says, just enough, um, stoli to make the stomach bleed. Ugh. It's so gross. And I don't like Bloody Marys t- to begin with because I don't want to drink tomato, but like, um, that, that was so gross. Like, th- like just the drink and like, and like the Camille can't even drink it. Like, and the pills. Yeah. It really is a grotesque scene. Um, but like, you know, in a good way. Yeah. In a, in a great way. Uh, yeah. Jackie says, uh, you look like pure blue ribbon shit. I know that look. I own that look. Great Jackie line. Yeah. And then she keeps saying like, drink your bloodies and like the, you know, I don't think it is bloody Mary's in the book, but like how perfect that is bloody Mary's yeah. for her to continue to say like, drink your bloodies. So she talks about, you know, she basically reveals that she, 
did know something was wrong. She tried in her uh, as much as she felt like she could try with the power that Adora has to do something about it. Um, but like, uh, you know, I, I would agree with Camille that it wasn't enough. Uh, she talks about this notion of just sort of like giving yourself over to it. Isn't it just easier to swallow the medicine, you know, and that's what Marion did. And that's what Emma often does. And, and Camille never would, uh, because she's more of a, a Natalie and Anne, uh, rather than something else. And she says uh, this thing to Camille where she says, oh, these bloody mares aren't very good, but every time I tell you to take a sip, you do. You know, and yeah. she's like, but you didn't do it for, you know, but so she's saying that, that Camille has still been conditioned by Adora, but like, again, recognizing that defiant streak in her, but and also almost saying it's a bad thing. I don't know. It's a curious scene, and I think it, it, it puts an interesting bent on Jackie's character, who we kind of have seen as this sort of, yeah, maybe a little underhanded, but mostly supportive energy for Camille. And here, she's more, I don't know, she seems a little bit more like, she seems angry at her. Angry and defensive, certainly, like, when Camille is basically says, you didn't do enough, you right. did nothing, and she's like, I did what I could, and she storms out as Jackie's, like, yelling at her. Um, to circle back really quickly to that sound cue we had early in the episode of the cackle that's abruptly cut off, like, it's just sort of like, yeah, this, this, the grotesquerie around Jackie, which is just, um, Elizabeth Perkins, who's, like, a completely lovely and not grotesque person, plays, like, pitch perfectly. So, it's, it's just great. And then we get, like, some tour de force shit from Amy Adams, where she's calling, she's calling the Curry household, talking to Eileen, talking to Curry, and- And can, like, barely speak. She's, like, so this, upset. This acting, uh, like, do you ever do? I I have often in my life like tried to talk while sobbing, and uh, Amy just like nails it. Yeah, in this. Uh, it's perfect. And she yeah she can't get it out, but she she says it's my mama like it's my mom. My mom's doing it. She's doing it again. Uh, and I can understand from Curry's point of view why that just sounds like a crazy thing for Camille to say. You know. Yeah. And and he's like just come home. Uh, no, it's not your mom, probably. Come home. This is all getting too much for you. Uh, I think also just, in terms of sudden realizations, yeah. like, Curry all of a sudden being like, I, I think maybe this trip was a mistake. It's like, yeah, dude, like, <laughs> it's been a mistake from the get-go. She told you as much. Um, well, I think I think that Eileen the whole season has been like, I think this is a mistake. And he's like, it's okay. It'll be okay. And then he's like, yeah, no, I fucked up. Yeah, Fuck. clearly this yeah. is not, yeah, not good. Yeah. Um... So, you know, so Camille says this thing where, like, she's doing it again, and I, like, what does she say exactly? She says, she's doing it again, and I need to take care of it. Um, Which that maybe sounds to Curry or to anyone like, I'm going to go kill my mom. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Um Then we get Adora sort of, uh you know, tending to Emma. Emma's getting sicker and sicker. She's vomiting. She looks terrible. Uh, awful. Like the, the sweaty makeup that they put on Eliza Scanlon is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Camille remembers her mother taking a little bite out of a baby, which is like, so in, I don't think we get them too much in like modern fairy tales. You don't get too many stories about witches eating babies, but it used to be like such a 
common thing in like if you read like the old old versions of super uh of old fairy tales i mean obviously like hansel and gretel but like there's a lot of other stories about like witches eating babies as part of their like thing yeah and um so this idea we talked earlier in the season about this idea of like witches and like in this episode obviously we see we see adora and her like potions um and this little nip that she takes out of a baby uh is you know a strand of the book it's really disturbing what did you yeah yeah, it doesn't Alan say in one episode, like, looming over this house like a witch or something? I guess maybe he's talking about Adora's mom. He was talking about Joya, her mom. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. But so this, yeah, that concept has been around, you know, and I was thinking of the movie The Witch from, like, 2015 or something. Oh, yeah. Where yeah, a baby yeah. is stolen into the woods. Um, yeah, it's all creepy. I, and I think that you, despite the fact that I've been complaining about, like, the suddenness of, of this, the sick aspect of the, of the episode, <laughs> I do, like this whole kind of crazy crescendo here at the end, you know, with this crazy scene with Jackie leading right to Camille in this state of frenzy, right into Anna being, you know, throwing up like, and then right into the end of the episode with this, with this Everly Brothers song. Like it's just like a really great swell of stuff um, leading us into the finale episode. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So we get like a quick Kelsey and Joes, we get Vickery going sick. Uh, and then, uh, we get this Alan moment. And it's so interesting that the, the episode has time for this Alan moment. But like, as we said before, like you can't have an Adora without an Alan, without a, an accomplice, a passive accomplice. So he puts his headphones on to like, you know, while, while his daughter is puking her guts out upstairs, puts the headphones on, retreats into his world and remembers like first you see like young Emma, who we've not seen much of, but you see young Emma and him remembering and then like Emma now, but in her like sort of baby doll persona and then sort of dancing to this Everly Brothers song, as you mentioned, which is called Down in the Willow Garden. They, they sort of act out the lyrics. So I poisoned that dear little girl on the banks below. And it's really like cute and dramatic, you know, like Henry Cherney as Alan, like puts his hand up to his yeah. forehead and it's like, it's, you know, and it's so creepy because it is, uh, counterbalanced, but, but like that they have this moment for Alan and his conflict and his like, I love my daughter, but I need to keep quiet in order to preserve my relationship with my wife. Like it's, it's, uh, it's very upsetting. And then, and then as you mentioned earlier, we get the, the bookend of, uh, Camille thinking about the dollhouse and then looking at the house itself and seeing her, her mother moving around, smoothing out like old Mary and dresses on the bed and stuff like that. So yeah. And then the final shot is, you know, on the second level of the home, is two paintings next to each other. The song is playing and the little girl in one of the paintings moves like her. She raises her arm or something. <gasps> I didn't notice that. Yeah. That's so creepy. Oh, yeah, I had to watch it like four <laughs> times to see it, but like, yeah, the, the, the girl in the painting, it's really small kind of mirroring the, the, whatever Camille saw in her dream moving through the dollhouse, you know? And I think it's just like another oh. bit of the kind of ghostly stuff that's going on in this, that, that, that valet has really added to the text. Um, it's not in the book. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah, uh, yeah and really then we is. also get, I, I forgot to mention, we also get, uh, Emma in this flower crown looking crazy and sick. So, uh, yeah, here we go. So it's a, I would call it, uh, a bit of a cliffhanger that we leave this penultimate episode on. Let us go listen to your conversation with Patricia Clarkson. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. 
I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Richard. Hi, Patricia. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you. Well, I have the pleasure of being on the line right now with the great Patricia Clarkson, who plays Adora uh, on the show. Uh, Patricia, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking. Especially after what you've seen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this episode is really where uh, Adora's you know, kind of uh, what she's been doing is, is kind of slowly starting to be revealed. Um and I, I'm curious, I want to first ask you, um, when you're playing a character like this who is doing a bad thing or several bad things, but doesn't really seem yeah. to think that she is, do you, do you play it as a villain or do you, do you kind of find the sympathy in her? Oh, God, no. No, I mean, I had, the, uh, I had a, a somewhat bird's eye view of the girl, which was helpful. I had not read the book. I read Gone Girl, and before I... Spoke with when I got the offer, I actually said to my agent, "Let me read the book before I speak to Gillian." And and he passed that along, and she said, "No, no, 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 no! Tell her, talk to me now." So I never read the book. I knew what was there. I knew, but I, I had a sort of um, perched position with the door, which was maybe perfect for me. I came at her with. <laughs> I know this sounds odd, but when there's much love, life, compassion, understanding, uh, beauty, these were all the things I thought Adore thought of herself. And I tried to maintain that. Even as you move into the, the deep illness she suffers from, which is what's apparent uh, coming forth in, in the latter episodes, um, people with this illness tend to think of themselves as saviors and, uh, high, you know, high above, and the only, doing good, doing well, treating people uh, in, in the right way. It's a very strange and uh, complicated uh, illness. And so I, it's why it's difficult for me to speak about it all because I, I, I should maintain such a, uh, a love for her or uh, an understanding of her in order to do this and not completely crumble or walk off the ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, because previous to the the kind of reveal about, you know, the Munchausen by proxy stuff, uh, there's also there's been some pretty grim stuff, you know, between telling uh, Camille that she never loved her and, you know, that that, that kind yeah. of um, it's not cruel. Exactly. It's, it's she kind of sees it as an honesty. Um, it is an interesting character because, um, yeah, she is sick and she's she thinks she's doing good. Um, and I think but that- the cruelty to to Camille it is so is so deep and so long standing and so uh, that was oddly harder for me than the Munchausen. You know, but it's all connected. Uh, often it is connected to Munchausen, a, a deep kind of psychological abuse. It's all uh, connected. And it is about control. It is about keeping the child close. It is about always reminding the child where they are in their life, the position they hold. Um, it takes many forms, Munchausen by proxy, but for the most part, it is about the savior complex and, and, and making sure that these children um, are forever in your grasp. And so, um, uh, so it is connected. And, and, I think for me, I came at it in a way of uh, I live this perfect life. Of course, I don't. But in my opinion, I live this perfect life. I want my daughters to be perfect also. I think many women and mothers and daughters can relate to that. Um, And uh, I try to look at it in in terms of... um, not by any stretch, my mother and, and also my mother you know, has asked me several times, Patty, this, this, this is not, this is not me. I'm like, Mom, no, no. <laughs> and then, you know, Patty said, what you did that? No, 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 no. That, I was like, no. So, but it is uh, a universality of, of this relationship that it, it, on the surface of mother, daughter, thoughtness, perfection, all of that, of course, it's much deeper and darker and really, really, really screwed up and fraught and, and life-threatening, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it, there is a brutality, a cruelty. It might sound like a silly question, but is playing that fun or do you, did it kind of force you to go into like a dark, you know, sp- headspace or, you know, because um, some, yeah. you know, we talked to Elizabeth Perkins for the show and she has such a kind of fun, silly character, but you're doing something different and I'm just curious, like, what that mm. is, you know, on set, you know, day day to day. I wouldn't. It, well, sometimes it was fun, like the dancing, and I loved dancing around, and that was Mark's idea. And I danced when I was younger, and, and it was fun. And he was a dancer when he was younger, and we kind of came up with this idea of a door kind of dancing through the house, and like to wear these great ballroom shoes. And um, I, but I. So there was moments of fun, but often what it was was um, at this point in my career, I've done so many things, uh, and it was most challenging, one of the most challenging parts I've had in a long time. And um, so I welcomed that, and I wanted that. And it was... thrilling in an actor actor's way to see can I can I actually do this? And she has some very beautiful writing, this character, in the midst of all of this um 
uh, darkness and brutality. It's it's a rather lyrical character, and so the juxtaposition was what I had to navigate every day, uh, and and that that I. I, I welcome the challenge. Yeah, there is really. She has some great lines. I mean, I, I'm thinking about you know the you you smell ripe uh, that that kind of really cutting <laughs> cutting line to Camille. Do you have a favorite Adora moment or Adora line? Well, but I I think you know there's a beautiful moment as I take Christmas scene, which is a lovely scene through the house, and I have that scene through the house, and I come to the doorway with him, and I say, "You're not." You know, she's, and it's, you can see that, that somewhere deep inside of me, you know, this, this child, this daughter of mine is, is, um, deeply affecting and, and tragic in my eyes. And I say she is a rare rose, but not without thorns. Yes. And I just remember, yeah. I loved that that moment, that line. It, it, I think it spoke volumes about really how she, and yet people are so attached to the kind of the kind of almost you know the the, the, the landmark moments that she has. And I've talked to you, but but this beautiful subtle um, um, torment in the doorway. I I remember that, and Chris, it was a it was a moment that Chris and Chris Machine is such a beautiful, beautiful actor and I was just it was a privilege to kind of do that scene with them. I mean with all you know, there's just so many beautiful great actors in this piece and of course that by the one and only name, yeah. One of the actors you spend a lot of time with uh is Eliza Scanlon, who is you know, something of a newcomer yeah. and, and this is her first, you know, big American, yeah. American project. What was what was it like on set with her in, in terms of kind of forming this very peculiar bond that Adora and Emma have. What was so lovely and wonderful is, first of all, she's extremely gifted, and that's very apparent. But, you know, with acting, you can only create as actors when you're playing uh, people with familiar bonds, when you're playing mothers, daughters, husbands, wives, when you're playing people who are connected in very intimate ways. You can only create or fake so much, so to speak. And so... You, you have to form a bond with someone off camera also. And Eliza is, you know, she's yummy. She's just, she's so, she, she's, you know, I I just adored her and loved her as Patty, you know, and I loved Eliza. So I carried all of that on screen. And so... Uh, that always was for that. That was always um, at the forefront. That was always most present with how I genuinely felt about her. And, and it's similar with Amy. I absolutely adore and love Amy Adams in ways that you know. Sometimes I would just pinch myself and I'm saying, I'm playing these two incredibly gifted, beautiful girl. I'm a mother, <laughs> and it would lift me for a brief second, and then I. Have to do something bad, but <laughs> for a brief moment. Uh, so that's what I felt with Eliza. Is I I got to know her mother, who is divine, of course, and wonderful, and and her sister, who's gorgeous, like uh, she is. She has a twin sister, and 
And so, it, 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 you know, I felt very, um, I felt, I felt uh, truly close to her. And I, and she would, she has a, a quiet, beautiful, emotional quality. She has um, a beautiful command of her of language and her space and character. So it was a, it was a treat, an asset to work with her. You know. Um, an- another major factor in in all of this, of course, is Jean-Marc Vallée, who directs every episode and has such a d- distinctive style in terms of, you know, cutting together things. And there's kind of this impressionistic collage-like yeah. structure. Yeah. Um, what is that yeah. like to film? Because obviously, you you know, you're you're filming linearly, like it's sort of. I mean, because you have to shoot these individual things, even if they're just going to be in the episode for a second. Right. Um, is it hard for you to kind of piece it together in your mind, or does it all kind of make some sense? Well, I will say, you know, look, I've worked with so many directors at this point in my life, and remarkable ones, and John Mark is a remarkable director. He is very demanding, and he is not easily satisfied, which is refreshing, because I think as actors, it's easy, especially as we age in this industry, we, we, we do want the bigger challenges, because I think we have... <laughs> we have the emotional baggage already, <laughs> and so um, it—he's it, it, a force, uh, and it, it was—we can get lazy as actors, and there just was no, there was no having of that with him. And he always tried to find the deeper, darker side of something, or sometimes the lighter side of something. It was interesting, and he has. A beautiful eye, an unwavering eye, and um, and he shoots from the hip. You know, it's very little rehearsal, it's very little planning. I happen to like that. Sometimes it's hard on some people. I'm I'm fine with it. Uh, there were some scenes I never rehearsed, and we just shot. And he'd say, "Just come in the house," and I'd say, "Okay, here we go." Uh, Improv about this for a second. Okay, sure. And then go on up the stair. Okay. And uh, we would we did very little rehearsal, and I think that was advantageous at times because it was so. Um, these are rather surprising and shocking and very damaged people, and sometimes what would spring forth was uh, unplanned and. Uh, I mean, there was no intellectual on it. Yeah. In, in yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've done a lot of film, um, some television theater, um, but, you know, obviously TV is having its sort of moment, its second golden age, whatever you want to call it. Um, and these wonderful projects like Sharp Objects are becoming available to actors. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a medium that you, like, you know, shooting eight hours of something with the same director, is this something like, is this the ideal kind of, Form uh, for 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 you as an actor, or, or how do you find that that kind of television to, to film ratio? I mean, I'm not drawn to the medium; I'm drawn to the project, and so I was drawn to this. John Mark Gillian um, uh, is a character I really didn't know if I could do this. Can I do this? And I like the unknown, the, the sheer error I had at the time, uh, which was. Good for me in many ways as an actress at 58. Um, when women are the center of big, big projects, it's, we're, we're winning. We're finally, it's, it's always good when 
you know, whether we are playing really lovely, heroic characters and solving the ills of the world, or if we're playing really fractured, damaged people, it's still, it's, it's always good when the more projects we get to lead, and especially now. Um, it's uh, it's always a good thing, and so um, and that's what also brilliant is it was written by women, led by women, had a male director, but you know three women at the lead. You know it, it was led with a female voice, so to speak, and um, that's always advantageous. And so you know I always you know I have a movie coming out that's going to Toronto that is written by a woman, directed by a woman. Uh, we have a big platform uh, screening in Toronto. And uh, so it's, it's, and I'm the lead of this film, and that's always, you know, of course I'm drawn to, to those projects, you know. Yeah, and, and, and Sharp Objects really is, um, you know, there are so many kind of in intra-woman de- debate kind of happening and all the, all this talk of, all the, you know, all the times that Camille has asked, you know, if she has any kids and all, you know, this kind of, cultural pressure from wind gap um i know you're from you're from new orleans from the south and you know we've had some debate on this podcast about is missouri the south and you know many listeners have been like well yes and here's why and here's the context was there anything from your own upbringing or i mean obviously not you know like you said you're not playing your mother but like is there did you draw from your own southern heritage uh to kind of better well there's there's probably you know i had a very uh oddly old-fashioned but progressive grandmother, my father's mother. Um, she was a brilliant intellectual, uh, but, but very uh, kind of old-school, but, but very progressive. She was maybe this odd mixture uh, of that generation. And so, uh, and, and just an extraordinary woman, but there is maybe... Um, the, 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 the rough parts of the door probably have a touch of my, my father's, not my grandmother, my, my Jesus. And because there, there is, um, there, I, there, there is a, a grace and an elegance and a, 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 a superiority that, that I have witnessed and known. Uh, I grew up very middle class in New Orleans, but I certainly knew uh, upper echelons of the society of New Orleans, which is very uh, apparent at times, and so I that all comes comes forward. That all is in my bones and in my blood, um, and so um, I'm probably grabbing at a few uh, parts of my past and my family and my lineage. But not for my real true upbringing because I I was just a cheerleader and I can you know big part of how I grew up in Algiers you know I, mean? I grew up in I, I grew up in the suburbs so um, but I know that life I know that life and I know those people who live in big cakes who live in three tiered cake houses I know those people so um, that. There were things, of course, that I had to reach back for and bring forward. I get a kick out of the bathroom. It's a little crude, I guess, but like there's this toilet there that's, it, it's such, so, so ornate and I don't know, it's just like a really funny kind of detail. Well, I'll, I'll say I had very little in Georgia because I 
people in Maryland lose their houses. What, what I would say is what brought me is, you know, it's just a level of talent in Los Angeles. It's the set designers, the set decorators. That house was all a stage, and you, it was so stunning. It was so meticulously done. It was so beautifully done that when you walked into those sets, <gasps> I mean, you remember the first day I walked in and saw my house, I started to cry. I couldn't believe this was my house with that Parisian wallpaper. The staircase in this kitchen, and I looked around, and I just, it, it, was, it was so fascinating and real. And that, to me, brought me back to my grandmother's old Victorian house. It, 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 it was really, um, that was so impactful, and that, that carried me every day. Every day I came into that set, it was my home. Well, it, it certainly shows, and, and you know, you, you, you command the home beautifully. Um, Patricia, thank you so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it, and, you know, obviously we're loving your performance on the show, so thank you. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, so that was our second-to-last uh, interview with the lovely Patricia Clarkson. And, uh, you can also, she also did an interview, a longer interview, uh, over on VF.com, uh, that you can go read earlier before the season. But she didn't talk about dancing or Munchausen by proxy. So like, yeah. uh, we got, we got some new info from Patricia here. Uh, and we are now going to roll into the spoiler section. Are you ready, Richard? Yep. Cue the Tupac. You all appreciate <laughs> All right, so a few things that I want to mention. Um, it didn't, I didn't figure this out actually uh, until a, a couple times through. But like, I was like, oh, I finally understand why the blood is in <laughs> the carriage house, uh, which is because, like, you know, once again, spoiler section, we spoil everything. Like, Emma's the killer, but Kelsey and Joe's helped her, right? And since Kelsey is Ashley's sister. Like, they had access to the carriage house, and maybe that was, like, a quiet place where they right. could, like, I don't know, yank the teeth out of a little girl. Or maybe, like, store the body when it was missing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. maybe the body was just in there, though. Oh, it was just, just terrible. So, anyway, um, that's the blood thing. Um, in the book, when Dick finds Camille there, he does see her scars, and he, like, really recoils from him from them. Um, I'm guessing we're going to get that in the finale that they're going to save that for yeah. later. Um, why? Oh, and, and then obviously like why Emma, Kelsey and Joe's are so interested in John getting arrested. Like if John gets arrested, then they're in the clear. So, yeah. They like go like, to the house to tell Emma like, Hey, good news. Yeah. Good news. And then Emma is like desperate for connection to the outside world. Cause she wants to like, know like, did he get arrested? Is it happening? You know, like all of that sort of going on, um, which they've been kind of launching a kind of campaign against him by screaming baby killer at him at parties and whatnot. So like, this is all part of their plan and it's working. And it's, it's true. The frame job has been on from the, yeah. from the start. Um, the dollhouse, you, you know, you mentioned the way it books in the uh, book ends the episode, but, uh, the dollhouse is so important to the finale reveal. 
or mm-hmm. I, I imagine it is, it's important to the book. Um, the fact that Emma has the teeth of all the little girls like in uh, Adora's room. And so uh, the way in which the dollhouse is used in this episode and throughout is sort of like how we talked about how the floor has been used throughout. It's just, it's thematically great. Like you, you wouldn't feel like it's odd to have it bookend this episode, but it also is just there to remind us. And like, there are two uh, moments in this episode where if you know what you're looking at, Emma is complete is super protective of that tooth floor, which is Camille sort of, goes to play with the dollhouse and Emma's like, no. Mm-hmm. And Camille says, Camille says, Oh, I'm not even allowed to touch a room, even in the dollhouse, meaning Adora's room. And like, no, because there's teeth in there. So right. you can't go in there. Yeah. Uh, and then when Adora is like doing her shit with Emma, where she's like, Oh, you don't need me. You don't need me for anything. Um, she goes to take the dollhouse and that's when Emma like relents and hops in bed. So like the evidence like, you know, that, that Adora had in her hands is what makes Emma capitulate and take the medicine. So it's a, uh, that dollhouse, it's, it's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else? We can um, talk about spoiler-wise? No, I don't think there's much left to spoil, you know? So, I mean, obviously the next episode will, will reveal all, uh, or most anyway. Um, yeah, so I think that's, 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 that's it for me. Yeah, I, I, I think I expected this episode to end with Adora getting arrested. Um, uh, you know, and, and that we would have like the whole last episode to get the ammo reveal, but I guess they're going to do like the book does, which is like leave it till the very, very, very end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there we go. Um, all right. Well, until, the finale. Richard, where can people find you? Um, I think at the doctor's because I think I'm getting sick. Sick? Um, but while I'm getting checked out for that, for my sick, for my sickness, um, you can find me at Rylaws on Twitter, on VF.com. Joanna, how about yourself? Uh, you can also find me on VF.com. You can follow me, find me at Joe Wrote This on Twitter. But in the meantime, I will be at the Better Bar in Wingate. Oh, good call. Is- It looks like they were poisoned. There's no reason Julian would do something like this. He's a 13-year-old boy. What did you do to your parents? They died. He's so far beyond anything you can understand. He wasn't supposed to hurt. Something might have happened to him. Why did you change your story? Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Sinner, brought to you by USA Network. I'm Emma Stefanski, the weekend editor of Vanity Fair. And I'm Matt Singer, the editor of ScreenCrush.com. We're here today to talk about part two and part three of the second season of The Sinner, which airs on USA on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern. These two episodes uh, have a lot of information in them, a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, and it just it gets really weird uh, from here, pretty much. But uh, the thing about the second season is that Bill Pullman's character, D- Detective Harry Ambrose, is the sort of narrative through line coming from the first season. He's the kind of main guy of the second season. And we have this mysterious crime committed by a young child against two people who we originally thought were his parents, but who ended up being something dun, dun, dun. completely different. In part two, what's going on is 
Detective Harry Ambrose is trying to figure out why Julian poisoned these two people. And we just learned at the very end of part one that this lady named Vera, who's Carrie Coon's character, is Julian's mother. And she comes to get him. And she's trying to prove that she's his mom in family court, but she can't do it. So Julian's living in this foster group home. Uh, But first, she talks to him, and he's a lot less forthcoming to Ambrose and to the police after she kind of gets him to to spend time with her. So they've got a problem. And they think that she might be involved in this somehow. But the big thing that we learn in episode two is that there is a cult. There is a cult in this show, and it's called Mosswood. And it seems to take people and make them disappear, strangely. So everyone visits the cult. They try to figure out what's going on. And... The episode ends with this shot of one of our heroes in front of this big rock that is somehow has something we to do with what's going on. Debating what to call it. The obelisk. The monolith. The monolith. <laughs> it's this big, giant rock. It's pretty weird. And then there's nothing that's not explained. Right. And then in the next episode, there's a whole... I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to kind of bounce around here, but in terms of like the important parts of episode three, we have Julian going to jail, like adult jail, not... Yeah. comfy child jail. This really is upsetting. Like very upsetting adult jail. Yeah, it's actually one of the most disturbing parts of any of the episodes to me was just watching this little child in his like prison uniform kind of being marched uncomfortably to his, his bed surrounded by these much bigger guys. I mean, uh, Julian is so little. He, he looks like evil Sam Levine to me. That's what I can't get out of my head when I'm watching the show. It's evil Sam Levine. But just imagine how, li- how little he is and and to see him in that setting is very horrifying. And of course, his, his mother is really upset about that as well. And I feel like in these two episodes, we really see a lot of the Carrie Coon character and uh, someone we can talk about more. But just... In, in just in those, these two episodes, cause she's, you know, we only see her a little bit in the first episode, but just in these two episodes, I feel like my opinion of her ping-ponged back and forth like six times, like, she's a monster, oh, maybe she's misunderstood, oh, maybe she's incredibly devious, maybe, like, I just love how, kind of in keeping with the theme of the show that these that people put up these surfaces these fronts and then we're you know we're peeling back that onion i just love the idea that i mean i feel like carrie coon plays that better than almost anyone because i have no idea like any possibility any outcome by the end of this series would be completely possible to me whether you know she is i mean there's even a hint that maybe she can control people with her mind and i think that's floated out there and i I would buy it. I would believe that Carrie Coon could maybe hypnotize or manipulate people into murder. I think that's a very plausible theory given what's happened so far. I hope that that's the twist at the end. Is that like she's she has the psychic ability to make people do things for her? I would I would embrace it given <laughs> what we've seen. Or she could be completely uninvolved. Like I would I, like the way that the show kind of carefully doles out information and 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 the way she plays scenes. Is really terrific in terms of keeping you off balance and unsure of whether or not we should trust her or not. So we get more with her. Um, we have we have more of Harry in his hometown. He goes to a party and he meets people who've lived there forever, and they're bringing up his 
the very casually in a party setting, the horrible things that happened to his mother. And uh, we still don't know the full details, but it definitely involved a fire. And and, um, we see more of those flashbacks. And then we have also all this stuff involving um, Heather investigating the disappearance of this woman she knew, seemingly a partner, a girlfriend, Marin, who went missing in the cult, has been missing for a very, very long time. And this is also sort of a thread that we, we're only starting to understand the full details of. But she goes to sort of, Harry kind of says like, what, you should follow up on this. Follow, you know, see what's going on there. And so she goes and interviews Marin's mother. And that's where she finds this big clue, which is this book that's been marked up where the name Julian has been circled emphatically underlined emphatically repeatedly and so that leads her to believe that her missing friend marin is in fact julian's real mother he's now had three mothers and three episodes this kid (laughs) he's getting bounced around and um that's sort of the big twist at the end of part three and along with this other thread which is as they're investigating the 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 paternity maternity of julian they go to visit the town doctor who sort of was the guy who signed the birth certificate and he's like i'm just gonna be right back he's gonna go look in his records and then he doesn't come back and they uh harry and heather go looking for him and he they found him seemingly having killed himself although i suppose we could de- debate whether we think there is maybe somebody else involved i don't know but he's definitely dead and as they're continuing this sort of search of of his his place they discover a mini giant rock a mini obelisk and so he is somehow connected to the mosswood cult which is yet another awesome sort of reveal that I think raises a lot of questions about where we're going to be going through the rest of the episodes. I love how this show in pretty much in every episode, uh, chronologically just ups the creepy factor 50, a hundred percent every time. Yeah. Uh, especially the end of episode part three, uh, where we have this doctor killing himself, um, after this long meandering, like labyrinthine chase through his house, uh, and then they find that like tiny little shrine. It's just weird. Yes, I can't wait to see where this goes. Right. And there's also the the that the little bit at the end of episode two, I believe, where they're doing they're executing the search warrant on the premises of the cult, and Heather sees that guy who they she noticed at the motel. That's meaning right. that again, just sort of suggesting that this this cult, which seems like they're just sort of isolated on their I don't know commune. Uh, that maybe they've actually infiltrated the, the nearby town. And I have a theory about this that I want to ask you about. Okay. To propose to you at the end of our discussion here. Let's save that for the end, because that's just the crazy me theorizing part. Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Stick around till the end, folks. Yes. <laughs> You're a Matt's crazy theory. As we're sort of getting deeper into the season here, what I, what I'm kind of digging as comparing it to the first season is even though Harry Ambrose is the one guy who's in both seasons and it's totally different casts and different cases. I don't know that the, the sort of ideas underneath the stuff that's underpinning both cases is very similar in terms of how we're kind of 
everyone is sort of held hostage by their pasts and these traumas in their lives and and the way that you can't sort of escape these things that have happened to you and they keep bubbling up to the surface and i mean literally these characters are like the the past is like almost attacking them in terms of these visceral violent flashbacks you know harry is at a party and the next thing we know he's like having this horrible flashback to whatever happened to his mother with the fire and then you know and then he's sort of snapped back to reality there's a lot of horrible snapping back to reality in the show where people are dreaming or whatever and suddenly go it's <gasps> a lot of like uncomfortable flashback gasps and yeah tracy Letts is there saying what happened you were just here you wandered off we were talking where'd you go like that sort of thing there's a lot of uncertainty with the dreams as well because you have that scene i think it's in the third episode where harry is back in the hotel room where the two people were poisoned and he his like childhood self walks in and yeah. looks at him doing that and then you see ambrose like shoot like waking up in bed gasping for air uh which is a really weird way to sort of open a scene and then there's also the i think this one is from episode two but where julian is having that horrible dream flashback with the hooded figure who sticks his fingers into his torso kind of reminded me of like indiana jones in the temple of doom pulling out the heart uh the the dream the nightmare ends before we get quite that far but it, it, it definitely has that same sort of body horror and and I mean, we could speculate about who the person in the hood is. I think the the you're you're you're, you're going to jump to the conclusion that it's Carrie Coon's character. I would think that's your. I think you're supposed to think it is. But I, the way this show goes, I, I'm uh, unwilling to uh, to 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 place any money on that bet at this point. Yeah, and it also could be a kind of symbol, which is interesting because I've been thinking about this since episode one. Uh, while there's a shot, while everyone is going through the luggage of the two people who died and there are two books that are just in one single shot and they're both by Jung the philosopher psychiatrist and the first one is about it's a book about how hold on let me try to remember it's the undiscovered self and man and his symbols the first one is the undiscovered self which is a book that Jung wrote that kind of encompasses his whole philosophy about how we have both good and evil inside us and man can only know himself if he understands that he has this these two warring capacities um inside him and then the second book which is underneath that one is man and his symbols which is about dreams and it's young kind of trying to psychoanalyze himself through his dreams and that's exactly what these people are trying to do in this season of the show it could come back later on. It could just be a fun little Easter egg, a weird uh, reading material for a family vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly not chosen by coincidence by right. the creators of the show. They put them there. Whether they come back or not, they are definitely there just for those reasons that you you pointed out. Should we get to my theory? Should we do that now? Let's talk about your theory. I want to hear. You've been okay. telling me about this. Right, you've me, been teasing this up. theory. All right. Do you want to hear my theory here? Yes, absolutely. Here is my theory Please. based on I haven't read anything. I know nothing. I'm a moron. It's just based on me watching the first three episodes of the show. I think the Tracy Letts character is part of the cult. Ooh. And would you like to know why? Yes. I have one one piece of evidence. Do you know the name of his restaurant in I the show? don't think I noticed. It is. There is a very brief shot of the sign of the restaurant the first time we go there in the very first episode, before way before we meet the cult. The cornerstone. Oh, my God. The stone. <laughs> it's Just a big me. stone. And so that's why I think that this restaurant somehow is 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 connected to these 
stone monolith obelisks. And I think we're going to find out that, uh, you know, like all of Tracy Letts' ingratiating behavior, hey, Harry, come to the party with me. Come do, come fishing with me. He's not being nice. He's being evil. He's being bad. He's being bad. Do you like, think he's trying to recruit him or do you think he's just trying to keep an eye I, on him? I, I, I don't know. It could be recruitment. Mm. I also think he could just trying to be sabotaging him <laughs> because, and like, cause when you look at some of those scenes, like the scene at the party, like he's like, and people just like randomly, like at a party, bring up his dead mother or his horribly uh, disfigured mother, whatever happened in that room that we still don't quite know yet. Like it's a weird thing to bring up at a, at a little cocktail party. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So that's why I'm wondering if perhaps everyone in that party isn't on it. It's and like um, what's that? The Tom Cruise movie, oh, man. Eyes wide shut. Eyes wide shut. Could be a little eyes wide shut situation, perhaps. But just I don't know. I could be completely off base. But I'm just wondering if the incredibly nice people in this town are actually. A front to, and it would, would certainly fit in the theme of this show, whether or not I'm right. The idea that these people who present themselves as these incredibly folksy, welcoming, wholesome people are actually part of the evil cult would definitely fit within the ideas in the show. And with like cult narratives in general. So totally. it's always the people you don't expect. Totally. I think this could be legit. I think you could be onto something here. I do think that there's more to Tracy Led's character than we are seeing because he just he's very one note he seems very like you want to go fishing you want to go to a party but they also are telling him all about this case they're sitting with him in his restaurant telling him everything that they figured out he's well positioned if he is supposed to be kind of a mole there Mm -hmm. to figure all to 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 report back to mosswood he is in a prime position to to get all this dirt and not arouse suspicion and you're right this character is seemingly superfluous in terms of the story i mean he's the reason that heather calls harry to come back because harry knows him but in terms of like casting this like tracy letts like why do you cast tracy letts for this part exactly if not to have him have some juicier scenes down the line i was thinking while i was watching the episodes before i heard this theory that now has insinuated itself into my mind i was thinking like tracy let seems to have kind of rebranded himself as just playing just like really good dads like Folk, really yeah, nice people dad. he tells uh ambrose that his daughter's gay just like kind of like yeah she's gay she's doing great. great uh so yeah but we'll I, I like the idea that there's a little bit more to that's him. my theory okay we'll see i like could it be, I, I put it out there i could be completely <laughs> wrong and i'll get everyone shaming and laughing at me but that was that's my the cornerstone that's my I'm basing a lot on one establishing shot of one restaurant. Well, when we have these this stone imagery in all these episodes, I don't think that was a mistake. Well, again, getting back to what you said about those books, you don't just accidentally put uh, young books in in, in that in that uh, luggage. I kind of find it hard to believe you accidentally named the the tavern in town the Cornerstone. Yeah, no, I think you could be right, but I will say uh, I did have a theory about the end of the first season that turned out to be completely wrong. And that's sort of what this show does to you. It makes you think that something's going on, but then it switches everything up. At oh, the that's last part second. of the fun because it has so many twists. Yeah, that's what I like about this in particular. Is that like I I'm very bad at discovering twists. I'm just very much like I will take what you give me and think that that is 100 percent the truth. And then when the twist happens, I'm like, wow, what a great! I didn't see that coming at all. So episode this kind three of, was good for that too. There was like two 
Two yeah. big twists. A lot of, a lot of twists. The, love, the, love the cliffhangers. The book scene with the, the Julian underline was just like yeah. very, very scary. <laughs> All right. As we're getting ready for the, the, the second half of the season here, what do you want to see happen? I for sure want Marin to come back. And I think she's going to come back. Mm. She's got to come back. Yeah. Because they've got to prove some maternity, paternity stuff. They've got, they've got to find a way to, um, figure out who Julian is and what's going on with him. And I want Marin to, to be there when they do figure that out. You think she's going to come back alive and not as a. I hope she's alive. (laughs) I hope she's alive. I hope she's alive so that she can talk to, um, Heather. I would worry she's been drinking tea. The, with the Jimson Jim, yeah, lead. That would be my concern. If I have one thing I want to see in the, the second half of the of the season, now granted they're they're a little busy, but the you know, the weird sex stuff from the first season <laughs> with Bill Pullman's character just doesn't feel like a complete experience without it to me. Let's bring that back. Maybe he's too traumatized from like his marriage falling apart. Yeah. Like, I can't do it's it anymore. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't do it. And that would that would be my, my otherwise I'm I'm really really I feel like it's a good season. I feel like the third episode was the best so far. Yeah, I agree. Super interesting, exciting twists. I'm no, I, I really don't know where it's going to go from here, but excited to see what happens next. On the line now, we have Carrie Coon, who plays Vera Walker in The Sinner Season 2. Thank you so much, Carrie, for being here. Thank you for having me. What is what is Vera's deal? Like, why is she so into all these ideas of like humanity's capacity for evil and all that? What what has happened to her? Well, I think um, you know what. One of the we get very little backstory initially about Vera. We know she's from East Texas. We know she was in what maybe you, you, it's hard to pick up on, but she was in a very corporate job, and then she kind of goes off the grid for fifteen years. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows what she was doing. And I think that people who are susceptible to communities or even cults, though I, Vera would not call Mosswood a cult by any stretch, she would call it a community, um, they are, they're seekers. They're, they're naturally very curious people. And I think Vera went on a journey to find, you know, she wanted to be, she wanted to try to be the best human being she could be. You and, uh, Alicia who plays Julian, share a bunch of scenes together, including yeah. a few flashbacks that seem like a meditation, psychotherapy kind of thing. What was it like building mm-hmm. building that kind of relationship between you guys? Well, Alicia's a true professional. He's, he's, a, he's the real thing. I mean, I know people say that about young actors. The thing about Alicia is that he has a really good head on his shoulders. This isn't his only preoccupation. He has a very full life. And as a young actor, I find that's very rare. Oftentimes they, you know, a young actor decides they want to be an actor and that's all they want to do. But Alicia's a really smart, very sophisticated uh, young man and a very, um, he's very emotionally intuitive and he asks really, really pointed questions when he's building these scenes, just like any, you know, just like any adult actor would ask. Mm-hmm. He's, he's really astonishing. He's very smart. And so I think one of the things that was really impressive to me about Alicia is that he recognized right away that we needed to have a very believable connection, not just emotionally, but also physically. Mm-hmm. So we were very like, I mean, just a lot of very friendly, like hugs and, you know, just not being afraid, not being afraid. He, did, he didn't put any boundaries up in, in a really wonderful way. Um, and and it, he's, 
you know, he's so astute. He asks questions of the directors. For example, in the scene that comes up later, he said, you know, this scene, we already shot this scene from my point of view, but now it's being told from another character's point of view. Should I act the scene differently? Because it's how they're seeing me, not how I see myself. Oh, that's cool. Those are next level questions. (laughs) Not every adult actor is asking those things. You know, I have a very, I, I often have a very intellectual way into a part or a scene. And my, my process has gotten more physical as my, as, a, as my career has gone on. But um, it was really fun because Alicia is very much a partner in all of those conversations um, when we're talking about the structure of a scene and the emotional arc of a scene. And he's very savvy about, um, about why a director is asking him to do something. And he doesn't push back against it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Take care. And that's it for this week's episode of Still Watching The Sinner. Join us again on September 9th after the main episode of Still Watching when we'll be discussing parts 4, 5, and 6 of The Sinner Season 2. This episode was edited and produced by Brandon Harrison. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.